HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Julia Tertian, host of Radio Cherry Bomb. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And what a journey we have for you today. It's a party. It's a Hanukkah party. We're having a talk about Delancey Street in New York City, the Lower East Side. And I have with me the authors and two contributors to the book called Eating Delancey, a celebration of Jewish food. Now, Food memories are usually some of our very first memories. If not our first memories, often they are our most poignant memories, and they stay with us for a long time. So these two enterprising photo directors and photographers decided to do a book about it. And they are Aaron Resney, a photographer, and... um, uh, a photographer, a food photographer, and, and tabletop photographer. Correct. Aaron, correct. Yes. Okay, and Jordan Chaps, who's a food director um, with, for a lot of publications and film. No, a, a creative. Director. I mean, not photo director. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. um, photo yeah. and in other things, fashion and food and other areas as excellent, well. Excellent, excellent. And joining us also, we have Kara De Silver, who is a food, a culinary historian and um, author and memoirist and. Um, expert at many things, and Arthur Schwartz, who is no stranger to radio. He is a radio personality and a cookbook author and a cookbook and a cooking instructor, and again, an expert in many things of cookery. Welcome, all of you. This Thank is you. a Thank fun you. group to have here today. Um, Aaron and Jordan, I want to start with you, and I want to know what, first of all, what inspired you to, to do this book? Aaron. <laughs> okay, so thank, it was thank your you, inspiration. Jordan. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for having us. It's very exciting yeah, for yeah. us. Um, it means a lot. Um, the, just to make it simple, it, it started out as a very simple personal photography project. Um, I've been doing photography virtually my whole life, and for many, many years, I sh- I've been shooting commercial photography and doing pictures for hire for, fortunately, for a lot of major magazines and a lot of, you know, commercial companies and about four years ago i decided wow you know it's time i get back to a little bit to my roots and do something for myself um came up with the concept of eating delancey and i got my team together and we actually three or four of us slept down to katz's and economy candy and russ and daughters and we started shooting pastrami we shot it shooting candy from economy candy we shot an egg cream and you know the people's reaction the heartfelt feelings i had for the pictures and wound up just turning into a project that people really reacted to and gave me a great deal of emotion um when i shot the glass of tea um tea in a glass that i realized was in memory of my father you know i realized 
you know, we were on to something that would mean a lot, not just to me, but to other people, um, you know, people from my culture, people from New York. Um, it wound up becoming a gallery show and got a fair amount of recognition. And um, then it, I called my dear friend Jordan Shapps, my comrade, my coworker. Jordan and I started in the business many, many, many years ago at New York Magazine. And um, I think I'll let Jordan tell it where it came from there. Okay. Aaron and I go back more than more years than I think I'd care to say right now. <laughs> it's radio; no one can it's see. Right, they don't right, know. Right, and, <laughs> and as I said, I have a face for radio. <laughs> Aaron, um, but years and years ago, Aaron was a burgeoning photographer, and I was a burgeoning creative at New York Magazine, and we managed to hook up. And for years, Aaron was uh, one of the key people I would go to for, just to give glory to New York Magazine covers and multi, multi, multi visual pages. And we stayed friends. I don't know how that happened, but we stayed friends after we he went to more commercial things, and I got segued into books out of magazine. He called me up, and he said, I want to show you something. Come over. I want to show you something. It's all that need to be said. It was going to be worth it. He shows me these fantastic, heartbreakingly beautiful pictures. I mean, it's food as art, and yet that art is is the the Jewish history. I mean, it's breathtaking. Well, evocative of so many, so many memories. Oh, absolutely, right? yeah. absolutely. Down to the placement of a spoon on, a, on the side of a bowl of soup, which I know Aaron would love to tell you about. But he said, I think there's a book there. What do you think? And I said, and he said, and we'll go nine, uh, 90%, 10%. <laughs> well, I sort of thought 90% is nice, but I can be a little more generous. And I said, first of all, I agree with you. There is a book there, and it's 50-50. On, on this, I said, but it's not just a book of photographs. Breathtaking though they are, it needs to be dimensionalized. It needs voices. It needs, we've got to, and we've got to go crazy and try for some celebrated people, famous people, important food people, and regular people, our, our Bubby, our Zadie, our next door neighbors, you know. And I said, it also needs shtick. It needs, I'm a comedian. It needs humor. It needs a little song, a little dance, a little seltzer down your pants. <laughs> and it it created a fusion. He and I then became Siamese twins. Well, you certainly got it. It is all wrapped up in this book, marvelously so. And again, for I'm going to back up a little bit because for our listeners, um, believe it or not, they're not all in New York. <laughs> so <laughs> for our listeners who aren't in New York City, um, Delancey, you have to describe, it, it's called, the book is called Eating Delancey. And of course, Celebration of Jewish Food. Everyone, I mean, tourists uh, um, from all over come to New York City to experience some of the Jewish cuisine that still remains. Um, so, Arthur, yeah, okay. Tell us. I'm I, saying you, it doesn't, doesn't remain. really remain. No, but not tell much. Uh, then for history wise, because these are a lot of old photographs. Well, Del- and let's say things. Delancey Street was the main thoroughfare of the immigrant Lower East Side. Not just for Jews, by the way, also for Italians and Irish. Poles and, and Germans. Turn, and, whatever. And, but, yeah. but after the turn of the century, it was largely Eastern European Jews. And Delancey Street, it's very fancy. Along <laughs> Delancey <laughs> Street, you know. Uh, Lawrence Hart, I don't know, wrote that probably in the 20s when maybe Delancey was sort of fancy. But in my day, it was anything but. Uh, Second Avenue was still a little fancy when I was growing up in the 50s. Uh, but there's not much left of that anymore. And the book is uh, tells a lot about what was and and why it isn't. Right. You know, um, and Aaron, let I me, think... Let me go, just say something. Um, we kind of use Delancey as a metaphor. Right. Of course. Because you know, it really represents all the delis that we grew up in Brooklyn and Chicago and different places in New York. And But... You know, at one point, that's where the immigrants came. And at one point, it was the heart of, you know, the Jewish flavor of New York and probably the only place left. Right. And you say, Aaron, you in particular said that um, you consider this book an homage to the vanishing flavors of your youth. Correct. And yet, all of you, and Kara, you as well, because you, you, and we'll get to you about talking about your memories, fond memories of the bakeries, you all talk about how important the food of your family was and that much of these memories do take place at family meals. 
at celebration of family meals. So when you say vanishing, vanishing in terms of, like Arthur said, it's no longer there, just like Little Italy is no longer, there's no Little Italy anymore. I mean, it... It's vanishing. So vanishing too. from people yeah. aren't people aren't cooking it. People. Right, and a lot of it is related to health and not wanting those kinds of foods anymore. I've spoken I to... Object. Yeah. <laughs> I object. I object. Let's add a little... You know, really, if you look at the food... I'm not saying that's right, Arthur. Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm I, saying what people told me. You people, they, they do. I just... The other day, some I don't know, I said this apparently on some internet thing, that, you know, just add broccoli. I mean, in, in, in Eastern Europe, they didn't have broccoli, okay? Uh, they didn't, all they had was root vegetables and That's cabbage. Right. And it's winter, a long winter. It's a long winter. And when, we, when I was a kid, when we had things like tomatoes and cucumbers, they were called garden vegetables mm-hmm. because in the old country, that was the only place you could get them, is if you grew them yourself in the summer. So and there was limited. Even that was limited because the growing season was so limited. So if you just add broccoli, a lot of this food isn't so bad for you after all. That's right. Well, now uh, what I want to clarify is that all of you, all four of you, grew up in Brooklyn. No. <laughs> okay, She's that was that was very quick. Just the two A's. Just the two no. A's. Arthur and Aaron grew up in Brooklyn. Yeah. And Jordan. Chicago. Chicago okay. and Miami well, Beach. Comrade. Okay. And, and I grew up at the Jewish end of Manhattan, up in Washington Heights. Well, then that's the Jewish end. Okay, of Manhattan. that's like Brooklyn. Okay, so. But I think of it as sort of the northernmost part of Delancey right. Street. And it's chopped liver that brings us all together. There you and go. Just <laughs> and other such, and also just. A comment on what Arthur just said. I absolutely agree. Most people have talked about the fat in Jewish food, but now we have schmaltz as a possibly healthy ingredient. That's right. That's right. So they have to go backwards from what they were thinking. That's right. Uh, you said that you, um, Jordan, you mentioned that the book would need some voices. It would need some shtick. And believe me, there's plenty of it in here. And you, I mean, to the point where you have food memories from the likes of Calvin Trillin. Don Rickles, Woody Allen, Jackie Mason, Robert Klein. And the introduction is written by the the, the late and great Joan Rivers. Um, a sad note to the book, but what a wonderful note to the book too, because she writes such you know, such fun she didn't even she didn't grow up with the Jewish food on her table even, you know, but she it came to her. They, the family brought it to her. Um, how did you so how did you decide who to solicit? How did you solicit? And who did you have to cut? <laughs> well, Aaron and I have been playing a game of creative toss and catch for a thousand years. As a matter of fact, I always like to bring up the fact that we were once doing a piece for New York Magazine, and I think we had a $5,000 foie gras shrink-wrapped, <laughs> and he and I were tossing it around like it was Whoa. a football. <clears throat> but, um, you know, turning us off is more difficult than turning us on. We sat down and we just started going, um, Jackie Mason, um, Joan Rivers. We even wanted Sandy Koufax, the great pitcher, the great New York pitcher who did not pitch an opening game of a World <laughs> Series because it fell on Yom Kippur. And then we thought, we're crazy, but let's go for it. And we just, I'd like to tell this because it's so true. Certain people that we would get to, no matter how famous, no matter how intelligent, how decorated, um, if we would say to them, uh, would you be interested? And they'd say, oh, that's so interesting. I'd l- let me think about it. I'll get back to you. I'll go and write something. Didn't happen. But if we talked to someone like a Bette Midler and she said, oh, my God, I'll never forget. <laughs> that They were they literally wrote it in an email or in a telephone call. Right. I was going to say, all you have to do is talk to them, on, talk to them right? And yeah. just write down what they say quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to be crazy about this, but there's a, a lot of people we wanted to have in the book that we couldn't because we it, it was – too much of a cornucopia. Yeah. Is there such yeah. a thing as Hawaiian Jewish food? No, Bette Midler said, uh, she said to me, oh, honey, she said, I was born in Hawaii. I yeah. said, well, I know that, but your parents came to New Jersey. And she said, oh, by the time that we were in New Jersey, I was a vegan. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then it, but then there were all the, then come all the jokes about, you know, how the great thing about, you know, the only problem with Jewish food, what the Chinese guys say, is is that two, two, two weeks, weeks later you're hungry, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, get, getting back to Joan, I, I think that was really a, a real turning point for us because obviously she's so well-known. But 
she just wrote such heartfelt words, and she's not really known for someone that's a food person, but um, a dear friend of ours, Abby Aronson, who helped us, you know, um, bring people into the book, she wrote for us. She had a strong contact with um, Joan. She'd met Joan before, and Abby just interviewed Joan, and we were just absolutely flabbergasted and um, about how she really just spoke so warmly and fondly of growing up in Brooklyn and eating Jewish food and that she wanted to pass this along like I do and like we all did to our children and grandchildren. And um, it's kind of a little-known fact, too, that um, when Abby was with her at, at another event, um, Joan was dressing. She was in the dressing room, and she saw a little tattoo on Joan's underarm, and it said 6M, and it was... And uh, Abby said, Joan, what is that? And she said, that's in memory for, you know, all the Jews that we lost. And um, we're just really grateful and obviously sorry that she's gone and we wish she was here to celebrate the book with us. But um, it was really a key moment for us for the book. See, the the thing about Joan Rivers that was so extraordinary, and I always loved the brittle take no prisoners sense of comedy Absolutely. and also she was unbelievably chic and stylish and she looked elegant even to the moment she died she was an <laughs> elegant but people don't realize she was also a bubby mm. she had a stake in her daughter and a stake <laughs> in her grandson mm-hmm. and that there was this very internal <laughs> jewish side to her absolutely and so many of these people i love the line too that when she said uh, that, you know, she was brought up eating kosher food, and her mother always said, um, the cows weren't slaughtered, they were nagged to death. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it, it, the names that you have in the book, so much, um, of, so many of these people, um, famous directors, movie producers, uh, comics, for sure, and writers, they really brought a lot of the Jewish... Food and humor, but food to a large swath of the population of America and, and across the world. I mean, they they celebrated it in their in their writings, in their jokes, in their in in their humor. And and Kara, you particularly, um, you know that food memories are are so poignant, so um, important. You wrote um, the uh, memories. Kitchen me in memories. Memory kitchen. kitchen um, the women of Tabizan. Yeah. Um, tell us the, about how poignant those memories were, and just in, a, I mean, briefly, just like encapsulated. Uh, the book Linda is talking about was a book of um, recipes written down by women who were starving to death in a concentration camp. And uh, they were not for cooking, they were for remembering and for honoring and for reinforcing their identities because food is about the most powerful identity marker that there is. And I was very struck last night. We were at an event at the Lower East Side Tenement Museum, and we talked about this. Um, when, when the pictures went up from the book, you could hear a gasp in the audience, not just that the speakers were moving or anything of the kind, but you can visibly hear a stirring in the audience as they saw their brisket, their matzo balls, their chopped liver. It clearly was so evocative. It wasn't just, oh, what a beautiful picture. It just, you could feel it ricocheting through their soul. And that was so moving, and I think that's what's so moving and important about the book, as as a means of preservation of traditions that are disappearing necessarily or not, I think people are so hungry to have for a that, taste of that history, to have right. a taste and keep that history, and right. that's what these two have provided. Well, what I want to do is talk a little bit more about the history that, as I say, a lot of tourists come to New York City trying to trying to capture some of that. And when we come back after a very short break, we're going to talk about some of these historical places. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. 
She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. It is so exciting to have this new medium. Hosting After the Jump has been a huge part of me transitioning from being a blogger to somebody who has sort of real important conversations with people in real life. My show, I I kind of describe it as an audio trade magazine. I learn a ton from the guests every week, whether it's it's restaurants, bars. All the hosts at Heritage all come from different perspectives. Everyone should be listening to this. If you're interested in conservation and and practical approach to renewable food sources, you know, not this big industry. Whether it's history, uh, laws, social policies of food, I think people now take food seriously, and hopefully what's on their plate will become something very special. And I feel that podcasting has a future, giving people information in a format they can really use on the go. We need your support to keep these conversations going. To donate, visit heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Okay, we are back and talking about a wonderful new book, Eating Delancey, a celebration of Jewish food. And uh, Aaron, you had mentioned that uh, the, talking about the vanishing flavors of your youth, and, and what I wanted to do was talk about some of these vanishing places, these historical places that so many of us remember and so many tourists come and try to capture a little moment of... Um, and then there was one comment in the book by uh, one of the former owners of one of those historical places, Ratner, saying real estate is a lot more valuable than the restaurant business. And is that the sad case that we're that we're facing right now? It's actually very unfortunate, and it's not just changing the Lower East Side and Jewish food; it, it's New changing York. New York, you know, completely. Yeah. Um, you know. It's just when I started the project four years ago and went down and got all the stuff a couple of years later, you know, three years later when I did the rest of the photography, I was shocked at how much it changed in just those few years. Mm. Yeah. Um, and Ratner's being one of the places. Ratner's, Ratner's was yeah. fantastic. There was two of them. Yeah. There was one on uh, Second Avenue and another one on, on Delancey. Delancey. Yes. Yeah. You know. Yet there's another side to the story. Nothing in, nothing in New York, for sure, is cut and dry. It, there are always uh, cross currents. Um, the Streit's matzo business. Yeah. The three guys who are now running at Cousins and descendants of the original owners. On every supermarket shelf? On every supermarket shelf. They, and the, the story, not to change the subject, is they all moved out of the family business to do this, to become a lawyer and accountant, and wound up coming back. They are critically weighing their desire to stay in the neighborhood because they have four tenement buildings that are conjoined. The place looks like something out of Charlie Chaplin's modern times with old equipment. It would be very easy for them to pick up and move to New Jersey, as Monashevitz did, and produce the same product for $10 billion less. But they feel committed to the history well, of the neighborhood. Well, that's what Nikki Russ Vetterman said last same night thing. about Russ, yeah. and Russ and Daughters. And daughters. Mm-hmm. That when they decided to open their restaurant, they looked all over and found various places and were close to signing and then realized that emotionally the commitment to the Lower East Side, the hundred years of tradition of Russ and Daughters, that they had to stay on the Lower East Side. However... And they are. They're very committed to it, both the restaurant and the shop. But they're opening in the Jewish Museum. They're going to open a, a shop and a so. restaurant right. in the Jewish Museum. So. But there are other yeah. people committed to their... Uh, this is in Brooklyn. I'm a big Brooklyn booster. Um, Alan Rosen, the current owner of Juniors, has mm-hmm. said that he will not sell right. his two-story yes, building. which was great. To have a, another high-rise there, even though he probably could have gotten a deal where Juniors would have reopened. Uh, with the new with the new uh, Barclays Center there and everything. Yeah. I mean, he well, could have yeah. sold that for a fortune. Right. right, and he's committed to keep – well, look, it's a great franchise. Yeah. Let's not – and sure. he's already in Manhattan. That's right. And, right. Square, and, 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 and in Grand Central. Grand Central. Central. Station. 
And yeah. Penn Station yeah, also, sorry, no, Grand Central. Grand Central. Yeah. Yeah. Grand Central. No, he's in the food court at Grand Central. Yeah. And you could sit down. And by the way, some days, the, I don't go around testing it all together, but some days the pastrami at Junior's is every bit as good as it is at Katz's. And the cheesecakes, I mean, well, mm. and one of my well, good friends wrote the wrote, wrote the cookbooks with them. So okay. they have cookbooks out, too. You can buy the cookbooks, yes. which is but what I want to. better baked at home. That's what I was going to Well, say. yes. <laughs> and, and Arthur, that brings me to my next point, and that yeah. is that there are um, not only are there wonderful photographs and quotes and and memoirs uh, from from famous people and not so famous people about food, but there are recipes, wonderful recipes. And Arthur, you have quite a few in here. Well, and I wrote I wrote a Jewish cookbook myself yes, called Arthur Schwartz's Jewish Home Cooking. There, see, he got his and plug in there. I had to, I had to, <laughs> and. Uh, um, and so some of the, I mean, I'm, I'm full of recipes. Right. <laughs> well, and uh, I cooked with my grandmother and my grandfather. My father's father was a chef, actually. Really? And, and, and made, as they call it now, uh, lacto-fermented pickles. That was, <laughs> yeah, right. That was actually, <laughs> that was actually his business. Was, and, and, and during the Depression, he sold lacto-fermented vegetables yeah. off a push cart to bars and grills. Yeah. And he made coleslaw and potato salad. But no, he was a, a real chef, and he cooked more Italian food than anything. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, who I lived with, I cooked with her from, I'm sure, an early age. They stuck a wooden spoon in my mouth and said, taste it, uh, Taste it. tell me. That's how I became a critic. Well, there are also (laughs) recipes from from some of these um, iconic restaurants. And I have to say, Blintz's from Ratner's, the very first time I ever tasted a Blintz, I'd had crepes and things, but it was 1968, a friend took me to Ratner's, Um. and I had my very first Blintz, and... I have to say that was a very special moment. And there's the recipe in the book. So let's talk. We talked about Ratner's. Okay, Ratner's, a dairy restaurant. First of all, people have to understand Ratner's is a dairy restaurant. Tell us a little bit about the background of Ratner's. Uh, Aaron. Aaron. (laughs) (laughs) Get the Chicago boy in here to talk. Oh, (laughs) I have a Chicago Ratner's story. Okay, all right. You know, I don't know exactly when Ratner's started, but I think it was in the early 1900s. It was the turn of the century, definitely. But it had a significant presence, you know, when I was growing up. It had a significant rock and roll following. Um, it was right next to the Fillmore. There's, there's a uh, right. a wonderful picture by Elliot Landy of taking of Janis Joplin uh-huh. eating at Ratner's the night it was open. The first night the Fillmore opened, uh, the Grateful Dead ate there. The um, um, you know all, all the- Louis Sunkin ate there too. <laughs> no, you're naming all these rock and roll guys. Right. <laughs> my yeah, grandfather ate right there, too. But don't forget, Meyer Lansky ate there, too. Uh-huh. Yes, they had no, the Meyer Lansky important. room. Yeah. It was a real significant... My grandmother's neighbor, Meyer Lansky. <laughs> um, we have a wonderful story that Michael Lang told, another rock and roll person, about how him and uh, Bill Gramps had a sit-down right. at... Um, at, at Ratner's and frankly to make a long story short you know the story ends that if it wasn't for pickled herring and blintzes and Yiddishkeit food the two of them wouldn't agreed and we never would have had the Woodstock Festival the Woodstock yeah. Festival yeah. Absolutely. Woodstock Festival you know Bloomed at Ratner's. At Ratner's. Right? <laughs> and Michael said the last quote is he said, you know, I always wonder if it wasn't for pickled herring, what would have been? <laughs> <laughs> well, Jordan, you said you have a Chicago Ratner story. But- well, when I was growing up in the Jewish north side of Chicago, um, I don't know, my crowd was all the younger brothers and sisters of older b- relatives. And when we were coming 16 years old to get a driver's license, everyone, someone's mother always had a car that we could gone of steel <laughs> and the 16 year olds would get in the car i would be the driver because i would you know they'd all fall asleep and snore i would wake them up when we had to pee and get gas but we would drive to new york because someone was going had an older brother or sister going to columbia going to nyu and we would be able to crash there and spend a, a weekend in new york going to museums and second acting broadway shows the timing was such we would hit the city three o'clock in the morning and head to Ratner's. Uh-huh. It was because it, it was open all night long. It was open 24 yeah. hours. I and think that was when I went, at about 3 o'clock in the oh, morning. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and at 3 o'clock in the morning, those little onion rolls on the table <laughs> were still warm. Uh, and the yeah. potato soup and the baked gefilte fish, yeah, being a dairy restaurant. My favorite me- memory of Ratner's is seeing a table of six nuns. Wow, yeah. Well, now, okay, flip to the other side, non-dairy, and we're talking Katz's. 
cats is still alive and well and people still lining up around more so than ever more so i mean than i ever. i live not far from it and i will see lines around the block at all hours of the day tour also, buses well can i i i, I know a little bit of what what because I'm friends with the family. <laughs> I went to actually I grew up with Jake Dell's mother. Jake mm. is now the young manager of the restaurant. His father and uncle are the owners, and Jake is really out there. He's very charming. He's young. He's full of energy, and he gets a lot of publicity. So I think one reason that Katz's is as popular, more popular than ever. But, you know, Katz's was really a dump um, mm-hmm. for a long, long time. In a dumpy neighborhood. When, well, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 the food was terrible. I mean, I would, I would go anywhere for a great pastrami sandwich, but I wouldn't have gone to Katz's, I guess, in the 70s or 80s. I don't remember when exactly the Dell family bought it and, and increased the, you know, made the quality so much better. But it's hard to meet uh, that old standard. But I have to say... I know somebody who grew up in New York who I took to Katz's for the first time when he was in his 50s. And he said, why would you come to such a shabby place? Mm. And I said, because it's full of history. It's, you know, but today's young people think that everything has to be shiny new. Right. Or, I mean, like Russ and Daughters looks like it's old. They did a beautiful job. Uh, 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 evoking well, you know, their, it's, their it's retail. It's years so. It's interesting. No, I mean, years. The, I mean the, no, the cafe. the way it looks. Yeah. They, yeah. Oh, the cafe. The yeah. right. they, yes. they evoked the old store. And, and you, went to great pains. To right. That's right. And, I mean, it's really and I, nice. I just want to, to clarify, Russ and Daughters, for people who don't know, Russ and Daughters Appetizing is, is a fabulous store, over 100 years old, um, selling sm- all sorts of smoked fishes and, and appetizing goods. And, and again, the well, line we, is out the door every well, holiday. We, Forget we can, it. Well, that again, they're uh, uh, Nikki, uh, uh, Russ, and uh, Josh uh, Tepper. Is that Tepper. Tepper. Yeah. Uh, the, are the fourth generation owners, full of energy and also social media savvy uh, and publicity savvy, just and wrote also a book. and their and, and and Nikki's father, Josh's uncle, Mark Federman, Mark. Uh, uh, made the quality there the best you can buy in the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, over the twenty twenty five years that he ran the business. Mm-hmm. And then he sold it to the next generation. He handed over a gem. And um, and, and, they're, and they're doing, I don't know what the uh, metaphor would be, but anyway, they're, they're doing, doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Both Bang up so the I, th- these I call the keepers of the flame. There's still yes, a yeah. lot of them right. around. And there are some actually. people, and there are some people who grew up perhaps, you know, in the Bronx or in the north end of the city, who... Uh, Believe it or not, didn't know about Russ and Daughters. I couldn't believe they didn't know about Russ. No, and I didn't know I mean, about Russ and Daughters. I knew about Jaime's uh, Highway High right. Grade Appetizing. On King's right, Highway. and I knew about Dates, which was right. I didn't know about Russ and Daughters until <laughs> no. I moved downtown. Oh. And then, of course, we have Yonel Schimmel, Jonas yeah, Schimmel's right. uh, um, Knishes, which are only good now. They didn't used to be. <laughs> okay, no, that's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, there goes history out no, the window. I, mean, the hist- <laughs> I, I never would have eaten a knish at Jonas Schimmel's when I was a kid, or my father wouldn't let me. Hmm. We would eat, we would stop at Jonas Schimmel's for what we then called sour milk, but is really like kefir is mm-hmm. a you know is is a yogurt type beverage or borscht. They would have cold red borscht with sour cream stirred in already, already poured in the glasses on a little refrigerated shelf. In the back. Now, something that is sadly missing, and and Kara, you um, gave you wrote some some nice memories about that, and those are bakeries. We don't have the great bakeries anymore. Um, of the Jewish, of the variety. Jewish bakeries, right? And uh, tell us a little bit about what you remembered from what was so important. I to was you. remembering uh, in what up in Washington Heights when I was a child. And how I was very bread oriented as opposed to most kids. I was not. They didn't want you. Didn't want the donut. You wanted no, the bread. <laughs> I wanted the bread. And um, I the door. To, there were two bakeries, Cushman's and Hanscom's, and I could not open the door myself when I was six or seven. It was too heavy. And I remember so clearly begging my father, "Hurry up! Hurry up! Get the door open!" 
so I could get in and start picking from among their wonderful wares or wonderful now in my memory, but especially Jewish corn rye, which has really disappeared from this city. It was this great, heavy, dense, fragrant rye bread that is one of my most potent memories, smeared with sweet butter and sprinkled with a little bit of salt. But one, and recently, friends of mine and I were actually doing a search around the city for Jewish corn rye. Uh, We found a best one, then it closed. And just at that moment, um, Nikki of Rosen Daughters re-imported from outside New York somebody who was a great baker. They made him an offer he couldn't refuse. And he came back to New York, and he started making the Jewish breads of old brilliantly, brilliantly, brilliantly. I mean, I actually have tears in my eyes. Thinking, and this is what they serve at, Russ, at the yes. cafe at Russell Daughters' Cafe? And you can cafe. actually buy the breads in the store, and maybe they'll start being distributed elsewhere. But that's the first Jewish corn rye I've had since I was since they disappeared Hmm. that was evocative of that memory from my childhood. Well, we talked about um, famous people whose, whose quotes um, and memories are in the book and, and the different types of uh, the different restaurants, some of the iconic restaurants around the city. Let's talk about the photographs, Aaron. Um, And, and Jordan, who you directed, which, which ones of course would be placed how, but Aaron, you, you started out talking about the glass of tea. Tell us, tell us why the glass of tea. Well, my father was an immigrant, um, a survivor, uh, came from Poland and Eastern Europe. And in that generation and people who, you know, transplanted themselves in this country, it was tea was drinking, drunk out of a glass. And, um, you know, he wouldn't know from uh, drinking it out of a cup. And um, it was one of his greatest pleasures. And it was a fond memory, and after dinner, he'd sit and kibitz, and if people came from the old country family, they'd stay up all night drinking tea out of a glass. And uh, not only was it out of a glass, but it was a specific type of glass, and it was his glass, and it had to be out of his glass. And um, if you notice in the picture, um, there's some sugar cubes um, next to it, and Jordan likes to tell that story. I was story. just going to ask him to. <laughs> In, in, in Aaron's heartbreakingly beautiful photograph, and in fact, the book has more or less evolved into a tribute to Aaron's father for that, that charming and, and, and historical and cultural method of drinking the tea, the tea, the coffee, the tea, of the beverage. Um, in the back of the picture, you'll see two beautiful little sugar cubes. And there's the glass of tea with the tea bag. And the thing is that people, not a lot of people realize this, you did not sweeten the tea. You took the sugar cube and you held it between your teeth and the front of your mouth. And as you poured the hot tea, the sugar dissolved and the tea became sweetened. And the funny thing is if your grandparents, God willing, lived very, very, very old, you would see slight erosion ah. around the, the top and the bottom top of, of the, the teeth. Tea. Oh. Uh, okay. You know, there's one food item, and we talked about the bakery, that I think has made a resurgence from this book. And whenever people look at the book, we talk about it. I do, we do, we've done a number of slide presentations, and it's the Charlotte Russe. Mm. And I, I think that um, it meant more to me than it did to Jordan. And I'm sure Arthur, growing up in Brooklyn, remembers that, you know, all the Jew- it's not necessarily a Jewish dish, but it was such a key component of the Jewish bakery especially in Brooklyn and especially in New York. And people remember and they wrote about it, they talk about it, they call and they say, you know, I can't believe it. I haven't seen a Charlotte Russe in years. She said, I remember schlepping with my mother, schlepping with my grandmother. We'd go to the butcher, we'd go to the fish store, we'd go to the, you know, they do all their shopping. They end at the bakery and they would leave as their treat and taking home this very simple recipe of a Charlotte Russe, and people look at it and they just smile. <laughs> when I was a kid, and we go to Fordham Road with my mother, there was actually a Charlotte Russe stand. That's all they sold. It was a tiny little store, and that was the treat to go and get. It's not very good. 
No. But I thought <laughs> it's not it was really, for a child, it's wonderful. It's sweet. Right. And that, well, not it's, that, just, it's not well, that sweet. No, all it is is a disc of sponge cake. Right. And this crenellated with, cardboard. It was the cardboard. That it, right, and then that, you could push up. Right. And and on top of that was whipped, whipped cream, cream with a cherry. Yeah. So what could be bad to a kid? You I know, mean, you eat the whipped it's, cream, it's a, it's you a lick sweet off Sunday. the whipped cream, yeah. and then you have a little sort of wet piece of sponge cake. <laughs> anyway, I, but I have to say, I have Kara. I need to give you a tour of Jewish bakeries in Brooklyn because we have a lot, and it's very easy to find almost everything. But the breads are not the same, of course. Mm. That there is a bakery called Corns, which has several retail shops. I, that was one of the with, ones we tried. With a K, we Corns with a K makes decent cornbread. It's not as sour and as damp. I know. And it was in our trial run. I, I know. It's just not everywhere. as good, but it's there. Now, well, hopefully good things are replacing some of these vanishing flavors. But again, back to the family memories, People aren't cooking the same. They're not cooking those dishes. Of course, at holiday time, don't you? Don't you have relatives? Some of the relatives pull out all the stops. Well, here's the problem. Arthur pulls out. No, the stops, no. So. Here's a problem with Jewish food. People don't make dishes on a daily basis. They make everything they know for the holiday. On the one holiday, day, on right. the one day. <laughs> so you know, of course, you leave the table feeling like a slug. Right. You just you know ate way too much meat and potatoes and whatever. That heavy food. So if you ate, for instance, um, a meal of uh, sweet and sour flanken, oh. mm. one of my favorite things. <laughs> your recipe <laughs> for it. Yes, yeah, your recipe too. Right? Is it in the book? I yeah. Think, yeah. Is it yours? Yeah. And it, it was sweet and sour flanken. I love sweet and sour flanken. And you serve it with a little potato kugel and some broccoli. <laughs> it's a, it's a well-balanced <laughs> meal. Oh, broccoli. <laughs> and, I make the, and I make the flanken a day ahead so I can skim off all the fat. You don't serve it with all the oh fat God, on top. Oh, my God, that sounds so good. I have to say, many years ago, when I was working on my Jewish cookbook, Jewish Home Cooking, um, a very famous food editor came to me and said, oh, what are you working on now, Arthur? I said, oh, I'm doing a Jewish cookbook, finally. And she said, oh, Jewish food is disgusting. Oh, and I said, oh. I said, well, it wasn't in my house. And she said, well, I had a Jewish grandmother. By the way, this is a woman you never would have believed was Jewish by her Locust Valley lockjaw accent. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, she said, I had a Jewish grandmother, and her food was horrible. I said, I'm sorry, your grandmother couldn't cook, but my grandmother could cook. And we ate very, very well. My grandmother, by the way, was born in Brooklyn, very American, but knew all the knew all the old dishes. knew all the old dishes, mm-hmm. and we ate them not just on the holiday. Now, the dishes I want to I want to um, talk about too is the the food that's represented here is is largely Eastern European yes. food, which uh, New Yorkers in the general population identify as Jewish food, even though there are so many different types of Jewish food. Um, you know, and the from, first Jews in New York were Sephardim. That's were right, right, right. That's right. And so, well, but, wherever Jews go, they have to, you know, they they follow Jewish dietary laws. But we like to assimilate, so we eat whatever the locals are eating. We just adapt it to our own dietary laws. So let's talk about salami. Oh. <laughs> but of course, it's beef salami. And what is this? What and what is the attraction of? Of Hard s- to find a good salami yeah. these days. Sending salamis, okay, to, boy to your boys army. in the army. Send a salami to your boy in the army. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that sign still hangs in yes, Castles. It does. You know, behind so the the, that was actually a song. So send a salami to your boy in the army. And and then you have. I would one? I I would mail order a salami. <laughs> there is one salami in America that I would get by mail. In fact, I should call them. It's called Atman's Delicatessen in Baltimore. Uh-huh. And I, I was bemoaning the fact that I, uh, a Hebrew national to me doesn't taste like salami anymore, and all the old salami companies are gone. So somebody wrote to me and said, "Try Atman's in Baltimore." All right, so I'm on a cruise. This is no joke. I was on an East Coast. I was hired to be on this cruise, <laughs> and uh, one of the ports is Baltimore. So what am I going to do in Baltimore for a day? I, I actually went to college at, in, at the University of Maryland, so. I, I know Baltimore. Anyway, so I went to the old Jewish neighborhood, which is very close to the port. And I went to Atman's and tried the salami, loved the salami, bought home a 30-inch salami. 
have to go through customs when you get off the ship in Florida. <laughs> Never <laughs> left the U.S. And the customs man says, are you carrying any meat? Because, of course, it's illegal to bring in meat, meat from foreign countries. I said, yeah, I have a salami, <laughs> but I bought it in Baltimore. <laughs> and he said, well, I have to look at it. I said, but we've never left the U.S. He said, you were in international waters. I said, in other words, I bought a salami <laughs> in the middle of the Atlantic. Kosher, no less. Uh, did anyway, you get to keep it? Did I you got get to, to keep, keep the salami, oh, of good, course. Good, and it was good. way too much salami for me, but I couldn't resist the 30-inch oh, salami. Yeah. Oh, my God. Now, my, my nephew actually owns a delicatessen in St. Louis, an old family delicatessen called Pratzel's. And he did have a great salami until about two years ago when that salami plant in Chicago, which was bought out by Sarah Lee, Sarah Lee closed this kosher salami plant down, and that was the end of this great salami from Chicago. Wow. So there's not a lot of good salami around. Okay. okay, I want to ask, it's it's that, you know, $60,000 question, and and I hate to put everyone on the spot, but Jordan, I want to ask you first. What you had something you wanted to say about a, a salami, but then I wanted to ask you. I wanted to ask everybody, so you have time to think. Okay, your favorite or fondest or most important food memory, and it doesn't have to be necessarily in the book, but it probably is. Actually, my mine it, it's immediate, and uh, it is in the book. Aaron and I each wrote a little blurb about you know our author's comments. And I remember uh, the tradition of my grand. I only had one grandparent. I I was the youngest of the youngest of the youngest, and by the time I was born, all th- th- three grandparents were gone. So I bonded very care very closely with my bubby Ethel Ethel Rabin, and she was the cook. She was uh, the cook, and we all slept over to her house for the every holiday dinner. And of course, as there is another story in the book, a lot of my family didn't get together, get, didn't get along. Mm. But at Bubby Ethel's on Rosh Hashanah. They got along. And I was always seated at the cousin's table, which was usually a card table set up at the end of the regular table. And I will never forget the ritual of Bubby Ethel carrying out, waddling and, you know, from, from the kitchen with platters of, of gribbonous chicken feet, uh, all of the gorgle and the herzl, the, the giblets and, and uh, gribbonous. Because everyone else said, oh, that's icky. I don't want that. I loved it. And <laughs> she loved Better that. Better define grimness. What? Better say what grimness are. Oh, yeah. Right. Grimness is the Jewish equivalent of pork, pork rinds. Pork rinds. But pork rinds. crackling. And from the making of grimness. Like chicken potato ch- chicken chips. <laughs> from the making of grimness, you get chicken schmaltz. The fat and the skin renders the chicken schmaltz, which you then separate. But then you get you left over with these... Jewish popcorn. Yeah. Right. Fried bits right. of skin. Right. Yeah, fried so fantastic. All right. God. If anyone anyone who's a picker, you know, on when you roast a chicken, you know that's so that's oh, right. what's what's to be bad. Okay, Arthur. I, you know, it's either making pickles lacto fermented <laughs> cucumbers <laughs> with my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, or the ordeal of making gefilte fish with my grandmother. And Aaron has a picture of the meat grinder that all yes. our grannies oh. use. My, my mother had one of those too. And I same one. And nice. I, uh, my grandmother would attach it to a wooden chair in the middle of the kitchen and put a bowl on the floor, which I didn't understand until I tried to do this myself. A bowl on the floor, and I was to grind it. So as an adult, I still have the grinder. Uh, the one that's in Aaron's picture. <laughs> yeah. And they still sell them, by the way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the problem with this grinder, and if you look at Aaron's picture closely, you'll see that he resolved this f- photographically. The bowl will not fit underneath Under the, the right, grinder yes, right. if the grinder is attached to a table. Right. So that's why my grandmother had to put it on a chair and the bowl on the floor, and why I, as a boy, didn't really mind grinding. But as an adult, it killed my back <laughs> to have to bend over right. and do the grinding. Right. So that was an ordeal. Okay, Kara. Well, one of them I already said, which was uh, Jewish corn rye with sweet butter right. and a sprinkling of right. salt. The other thing I remember very intensely is that my grandmother had um, a green pot. I don't know what it was made out of, but the outside color was green. And then out of that would come the most extraordinary 
extraordinary. It was a pot full of wonder. And <laughs> one of the things that I remember particularly is that in addition to serving her matzo balls, her kanelach, in soup, she would also create um, what we would now call caramelized onions, but for her was just browning, <laughs> a pool of browned onions and garlic, and she would brown the kanelach, the matzo balls, in them and serve them as a side, along with brisket or potted chicken or some other kind of meat. Those were kreplach. And they were heaven. They Absolutely. just remain mm. in my I mind. I can taste it mm. now, Carol. Mm. <laughs> okay, and last but not least, Aaron. Well, we just touched on it, but um, I I can't stop remembering my grandmother making kreplach. Um, it was a huge festive occasion. I loved them. She loved making them. She made them by the hundreds. It was a huge ordeal. I had about 10 or 12 cousins that lived in Brooklyn, and she would make it for everyone. And um, it was just made with such just love and joy. And we ha- she made them with potato, stuffed with potatoes, sometimes stuffed with blueberries, sometimes stuffed with chicken liver, Ooh, sometimes stuffed with meat. And we ate them fried. We ate them in soup. We ate them plain. And um, it's just such a fond memory. Wonderful. Well, I I really hate to have to stop talking because this is such a fun conversation, but in interest of time, we do have to close. And I just want to remind people that the book is called Eating Delancey, a Celebration of Jewish Food. Um, Aaron Resny and, and Jordan Shapps um, have put this together, and two of the contributors, Arthur Schwartz and Cara De Silva, are here with me. And if you need... Uh, last-minute Hanukkah present. If you want a lovely uh, treat for your own coffee table to sit out and look at, this is a book that you won't be disappointed in. And these are memories that I hope people will um, continue to talk about because they are certainly cherished. You can feel the importance out of this book. And thank you all so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.